Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Welcome back to the Partially Examined Life, episode 316, Extravaganza. This is part two of our April 15th New York City live show on Fyodor Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. We've laid out the rebellion and Grand Inquisitor arguments given by Dostoevsky's character Ivan, as well as Dostoevsky's Christian response to these, and are now ready to get critical, first by ourselves and then with the help of our live audience. So I want to raise what I consider to be a fatal issue with this, with this position. So Zosima's characterization of what love is, ultimately the aspiration is for, as he says, all being accountable for all. Mm. It's not your ability to love one individual person unconditionally or love the world, but for you, and this is to get back to the existentialist point, if existentialism can be characterized in some way about radical responsibility. You're free in the sense that you have complete and total responsibility for your being, your existence. You have to take full responsibility for for you and every decision you make and everything you do. This form of existentialism that's characterized by Zosima is literally like full total responsibility of every individual for every other individual and the world and themselves. And that is a Christ-like model of love, not a human-like model of love. And I don't think that this answers the objection that you get from the Grand Inquisitor because I really think if that's your characterization of what it takes to overcome suffering, to answer this suffering, not only is that not achievable, I would venture to guess that there's not one person in this room who carries around in them the capability for Christ-like love and accountability for all. But it's also not the point. Christ didn't come down to earth to redeem us all to be Christ-like. The whole point is that we sin and, and that we need to be redeemed. And the idea that your model of love or your model of behavior is Christ is exactly the failing. And Zosima's tying this to, he's talking about these humble monks in the monasteries, you know, this ascetic kind of ideal of Christ-like behavior, I think that kind of level of radical responsibility is just absolutely unattainable, unrealistic, and in no way, shape, or form answers the other argument. But that's me. So I'm I know, Jew. yeah, I know we were talking. <laughs> We've been stressing the radical choice, and yes, all this stuff about responsibilities in there, and is a very puzzling thing. But he also describes the mechanics, right? They, they give Zosima's backstory, how his, his older brother was dying and he'd kind of been a, a churlish fellow throughout most of his life. But at some point he, he gains this sense of peace and he's, he's it's sort of like he's gained an infection. He's even begging forgiveness. You know, he's, he's said, I'm pretty much, I'm one with everything because I'm taking responsibility for everything. I'm, I'm accepting this on myself. He begs forgiveness of every, he begs forgiveness of the birds. 
It says, it may be senseless to beg forgiveness of the birds, but birds would be happier at your side, a little happier anyway, and children and all animals, if you were nobler than you are now. It's all like an ocean, I tell you. Then you would pray to the birds too, consumed by an all-embracing love in a sort of transport and pray that they too will forgive your sin. Treasure this ecstasy, however senseless it may seem to men. So he infects Zosima. Zosima is infecting Alyosha. Alyosha is going around and infecting all these other characters that it's, again, the social aspect, which makes it sound, it's not just you and Grace or something like this. It is the things that we do to other people that, that enable them so I don't, I don't right, know like, that anybody so like in Ivan situation. with Smerdikov, right? That's the big example, yeah. right? So the meaning of responsibility has changed. And Ivan doesn't physically kill the father, Fyodor, but it's his ideas influencing Smerdikov that do that. There's another example where Zazma talks about a, you know, you ought to be careful about the way you act, the way you behave, but also just even what you project emotionally in front of children, because they might see that and be influenced. So this is about influence, and you know, Alyosha really lives this out in the novel with um, children, and he gives a big speech at the end. I we could read it or not, but Ilyusha's funeral. Yeah, the eulogy. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I just wanted I wanted to just comment on Seth's. So I think that that is a real tension because I think you're pointing to the language of universalism that's in Zosima's argument that. Almost everywhere else, he's the the argument seems to be pushing against that universalism. That universalism is a kind of fatal flaw, both of reason in terms of overarching and be, and that turns to nihilism. And the Grand Inquisitor's argument is a universalism that falls apart. It's it's it ends up being they become like twin arguments that um, fatally don't recognize genuine mystery. And I find that that piece that you referred to is puzzling, 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 puzzlingly. Thank you. Indefatigably. (laughs) (laughs) Dissonant. So um, I don't know why. I don't know why that's there. That's sort of, I want to tone it down to a disposition of open lovingness that isn't the same as accepting responsibility for everyone and everything. So it's more like that, that nature love that you get, that, that is a disposition of open lovingness in your acts, in the way you do things, that doesn't come with the universalist acceptance of responsibility uh, for changing this is This is responsibility 100% with you on, on the front end rather than the back end, right? This isn't, you did something wrong, you're responsible for that, we're going to punish you. This is preemptive responsibility, which is love. Yeah, I think a, a common part of existentialist ethics is it's not directed at other people. It is a self-improvement philosophy. It's how can you live with the fact that there's all this suffering in the world? Well, here's a life strategy for doing this. See the alternatives. See these other characters running around acting irrationally and defending their honor and getting too deep into lust and other things. And no, no, no. Go the, go the, the Zosima slash Alyosha's ultimate destination route and you will be at peace. And that is the argument. And you can't then turn it around and say, you are not Christ-like enough. Like, that is just not in the spirit of being Christ-like. <laughs> well, <laughs> right. And if, if we were doing, you know, if we were doing some kind of, if this was not a discussion about the philosophical 
themes and explicit philosophical arguments in the book and was a, a literary deconstruction of the characters and yada, 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 you would say, oh, Alyosha is exactly manifesting these behaviors and in the way that he manifests them, you actually see this is the mechanics of how love can actually make the world a better place, right? The ripple effect, right, honey? So I don't disagree with that. What I disagree with is having to have the giant 800-pound gorilla of orthodox religion on our backs while we have this conversation or why, we, why is yeah, that there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a good way to end, actually, with Alyosha's eulogy because the other key piece is memory. Right? So do right. You yeah. So it's not just doing, you know, loving acts, but the memory of that love can carry us forward in a way. So this this is a eulogy for Yusha who's sort of disproves Ivan's idea that children are just universally cute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> bites Alyosha at a certain point in the finger to the bone, but is helped like a bunch of other boys tremendously by Alyosha's loving, accepting attitude. So this is what Alyosha says at the end. You must know that there's nothing higher and stronger and more wholesome and good for life in the future than some good memory, especially a memory of childhood, of home. People talk to you a great deal about your education, but some good, sacred memory preserved from childhood is perhaps the best education. If a man carries many such memories with him into life, he is safe to the end of his days, and if one has only one good memory left in one's heart, even that may sometime be the means of saving us. Perhaps we may even grow wicked later on, may be unable to refrain from a bad action, may laugh at men's tears, and at those people who say, as Kolya did just now, I want to suffer for all men, and may even jeer spitefully at such people. But however bad we may become, which, God forbid, yet... When we recall how we buried Ilyusha, how we loved him in his last days, and how we have been talking like friends all together, at this stone, the cruelest and the most mocking of us, if we do become so, will not dare to laugh inwardly at having been kind and good at this moment. So these are memories that bolster us against cynicism, nihilism. The very last thing, don't be afraid of life. How good life is when one does something good and just. So it's not about suffering in the sense of what you're passively receiving. It's not the determinant of whether your life is good. It's about whether you're doing good. So Yeah. So I think the time has come. We want to bring folks from the audience into the conversation. Is there something that you didn't understand? Is there something? Give us your take. Give us a question. Give us something. The mic is going to be set up right over there. Someone is arising from a chair. Walking towards stage right. Unless you're just leaving for the restroom. That's fine, too. Okay, all right. Oh, he is leaving. All right. Uh, oh, wait. There's somebody at the... Say your name and ask your question. Hi, guys. Uh, my name is Jesse. Um, Hi, Jesse. Thank you for doing this. I guess my question is, like, you're a philosophy podcast, right? So being rational matters to you. Alyosha's solution is just massively irrational. And... How do you deal with that? Like, how do you give up on the rationality aspect to be a better person? And does it become more rational on the far side of it after you've strived towards virtue or strived to be a good person? Just interested in your thoughts on that. 
I mean, it's instrumentally rational, right? It just, it's look how, what, what is the smartest way to go about your life? Well, look what a mess these other people make. I guess rationally, <laughs> this is the best way. But no, it does not actually, as you say, solve the, the rational problem of evil. It does to me. It's just sort of distracting from it. Just don't think of things that way. You don't have to think of things like that. So it is, it is uh, in some ways, just a denial of, of the importance. I don't know. Do you guys have anything? Or maybe to add what's, on? what's irrational? Yeah, tell us what's irrational. So I guess, like, that. I study philosophy. I'm a little bit of a Platonist, but like, Plato has the idea of a noble lie, right? So Plato introduces this untruth into the foundation of philosophy. Alyosha basically says you should live in untruth if you want to live a good life because you, not untruth per se, but you act out in this way that if you tried to rationalize it to yourself, like Ivan does, it doesn't really make sense, right? So how do we deal with the untrue nature of some of our actions or the fact that we can't justify them to ourselves? So, I, guess. I don't think Alyosha would frame it that way. He wouldn't say that I'm telling myself a lie. In fact, he would frame it as these acts of love are mysterious, but I'm convinced of them because they come from inside me and they come from inside those acts of, on the world. And so there is something inherently mysterious that ends up being preserved. So that part's unavoidable. That, that, that part that I, I'm interpreting is what you mean by how do you deal with the irrationality. There's, there's going to be that piece where you say, well, there's something that is left over in the rational account the reasonable account that involves acts that have some mystery to them. Like, and then the uh, example, examples Ivan himself brings up that, uh, or it's spring now, right? And that, that when you walk out and you say, I just love the blue sky and I love the birds, right? That act is one that's, that is full of mystery from Alyosha's point of view. And that the extra thing is the cultivation of that kind of activity in your being with respect to the rest of the world. That's the, that's the antidote and the cultivation of sort of living with that mystery and accepting it as convincing. The next question, please, come to the mic. I'm curious about the idea that you brought up of that active love is this Christ-like love that's unattainable in human nature, right? That, that people can't truly be Christ-like. And I'm wondering what you think about kind of the idea of striving towards an unattainable ideal, which seems like where you end up with that. Because I think that's very central to existentialism is like you will never be like a good person in some absolute way, but you should try anyway. Yeah, I think we may, I I don't know if we might have given the wrong impression, but I think the idea is that it's precisely not Christ-like impossible love. It's just very small acts of kindness and decency. And this is something I think Dostoevsky explicitly thought about, right? This, this, this is the theory that it's not this enormous, you know, in the same way that you're not going to appeal to some fancy theology, it's also not, it's not asceticism, right? So Father Fairpont in the novel is kind of a foil. People who are just straight out mystics and making these enormous demands on themselves and others. That's not the way it's going to be. It's going to be smaller demands for, for decency, even if you actually do, right? Hate people with stupid faces, right? So you, you, you're aware of that. You don't act on that. You go to a therapist. You talk about it. 
blah blah blah. So that's I think that's the idea. Am I am I wrong about that? Or well, yeah. One, one of the one of the letters in this uh, Norton Critical Edition that we had, you know, that Dostoevsky had written was is parenting advice, and he says, you know, parenting is actually pretty easy. You know, you're going to make mistakes, but if you perform, be be a generally good example, perform some good actions, right, and then your kids are going to grow up and they're going to remember you for those things. They're gonna over. So he's not demanding perfection. I think what Seth was specifically referring to is the "I take all responsibility for everyone." I don't understand that at all. <laughs> um, that, but you know, when you see how this actually plays out in behavior, I feel like that the behavior then puts you in a mode that Dostoevsky thinks that you're just gonna immediately assent to the theology. To I think maybe this "I'm responsible for everyone" is part of the this extended theology, and I I don't see why you have to make that additional leap. I think you could just take this in a secular way and say, yeah, how, you know, how do we reconcile ourselves to suffering in the world? Well, one little good deed at a time. To address the question you actually asked. Um, <laughs> I think you're pointing towards the idea of using an unattainable ideal as a guide or as a motivation, perhaps, for trying to to act. And I think that's perfectly acceptable. There's a saying in Judaism that you can never perfect the world, but you're not permitted to cease from trying to do so, right? And so I think that's fine. I think what I was raising around the issue of using Christ as a model is it's not just an unattainable idea, but that trying to attain or even using that as a model can lead to enormously destructive behaviors, both in the way you treat yourself and potentially the way you, you treat others. I feel the same way about many, many other ideas, if you will. Yeah, some of these things like Ivan's hypermoralism, like he can't forgive himself. Like that, that is part of, even if you have this unattainable ideal, you don't use it as a thing to whip yourself every time you stray from it. Like that's part of the ideal is being good to yourself. That's a small acts of kindness towards yourself. Next up. Does Dostoevsky establish that God is a necessary precondition for loving? Can the atheist not also adopt such an attitude? I think he kind of strawmans the atheist perspective on caring about other people and just what your thoughts on that are. We have a Rakitin advocate in the audience. So Rakitin makes right precisely this argument. We don't need God to have a loving attitude towards others, to want to to want social justice, to want to solve all these sorts of problems. I think the, you know, the position in here, it's explicitly expressed, is that, or at least this seems to be Ivan's idea, is that there's no morality without God, which is a difficult, an old philosophical question. And then uh, there's this idea that, right, we can't truly love one another in the way that's required unless there is a God. Did anyone give some thought to this and... You know, I didn't. I didn't end up with a good argument for that. A defense that I tried, but I yeah. Well, my my own thought is that that Dostoevsky has to gloss this, right? He ends up presenting the argument about love, but it's the way in which. Well, I quoted from Zosima's reply to Madame Kolakova about uh, faith, and even that response is one that you will be convinced, and that convincing. I think is utterly plain for Dostoevsky that all that preservation of mystery and all of the argument that we make good in the world and the reply to suffering and evil are individual acts of kindness, that itself ends up being a 
convincing proof of God. But with Ratkin, I don't know that you, I mean, I'm, I'm not convinced of it, so. <laughs> I mean, but, I, I, but, but, I'm, yeah. but I'm convinced of the other part. I think part of the idea is that, so we, we tend to be egotistical and selfish just naturally, right? And we need some kind of counterbalance to that. And I think the idea that is that that has to involve at least a belief in the immortality of the soul. So I think the larger idea is that there, for us to love one another, there has to be this larger framework in which we are not just animals, we are more than that, we are spirits, so that there's someone to actually love in the requisite way, a way that a, a soul would be loved as opposed to just an embodied animal. Not that that's entirely convincing, but yeah. No, he doesn't. That's because it's not true. It's one of the puzzles of Dostoevsky of, of why he seems to not want to debate these theological points that he says, uh, maybe this is in one, a letter that, you know, belief in God and belief in immortality, it amounts to the same thing. Like, those seem very different, you know, there are whole theologies that have one and not the other, uh, but yet, so, you know, to give a, a generous reading of this, I think maybe what you could give sort of a multicultural pluralistic reading that whatever religious tradition you're in, let's say that if you have the requisite good feelings, you're going, maybe it's a new age religious tradition, maybe it's something very non-traditional, but you're going to have something that I want to say points at the transcendent, but that's not right because it's not, you know, it's, it's the ocean of love again. And there's just a way we have to articulate that somehow. I think he would be very, uh, you know, if he had new agers in his time, he would be very suspicious of their if you have free-floating things with no definition, then they're going to sort of collapse on itself. That having this structure of here's what you know, here's a creed or something, even if it's just as a behavioral aid to like we have to go through the motions and kind of get in the habits of being a good religious person. Like he just sees that as an identity, a, a socially established. Again, one of our needs is to join with other people. So if everybody just, well, I, I have religion in my own way, that's going to be a barrier, I think, according to him, in ultimately being consistently good. We're going to inevitably be factionalist. So I guess his solution is that we should all be Russian Orthodox. I, 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 I want to give one more. I just want to say what Zazima says about this, even if it's un, unconvincing. He says it's a spiritual, psychological process. He's talking about brotherly love. To transform the world, to recreate it afresh, men must turn into another path psychologically. Until you have become really, in actual fact, a brother to everyone, brotherhood will not come to pass. No sort of scientific teaching, no kind of common interest will ever teach men to share property and privileges with equal consideration for all. Everyone will think his share too small. They will be always envying, complaining, and attacking one another. You ask when it will come to pass, it will come to pass, it will come to pass, brotherly love. But first we have to go through the period of isolation. So, so anyway, convincing or not, that's the, that's the idea. Yeah. Anybody who's interested, in my opinion, about transcendent ideas and how they, whether they're necessary or not for moral action, can find me at the bar afterwards. But, <laughs> um, and that's a, you can guess what my opinion is. But, the issue with that is that the notion of brotherly love is tied to heaven here on earth. That's also rolled up in that same narrative. So it's not brotherly love like, you know, it's literally land of milk and honey. So you're still caught up in that Christian slash Greek Orthodox no, he's, notion. is rejecting that. No, he's not. Yeah, he is. No, he's yeah. not. No, he is. <laughs> Because it takes, a long, it takes a long time. It's a very incremental process no. of 
people doing small acts of kindness but towards the, each but other. But the goal ultimately is heaven on earth, not brotherly love. It's uh, literally heaven on earth. See, I, 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 think that you're, I think that you're attributing Ivan's, Ivan's point of view to Zosima there. Yeah, I, I think this whole, like, why we didn't even talk about later, Ivan is out of his mind, and the devil appears to him in his dream, and he says, hey, I'm the devil, I'm necessary, without me, nothing would happen. It would just be constant hosannas all the time. So this is a very existentialist thing that, you know, the goal can't be for some static platonic goodness that we have established heaven on earth or whatever. It has to be an ongoing process. There actually has to be suffering. Does it have to be this yeah, bad suffering? It, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> there has to be something for us to overcome, because that's sort of our job as human beings that's like our psychologically we would not work if we did not have those challenges and those evils to reconcile ourselves with all right shall we move on to yes thank you well i'm glad you brought up the section about ivan arguing with the devil because it kind of factors in here when you were talking about the devil sort of being able to reason you to death i wondered as i was listening to the conversation you know, I became increasingly convinced, and I'm impressionable, but uh, I became increasingly convinced that, like, yes, you know, pure rational argument is insufficient. There are these things that might be outside of the strictures of rationality. But I realized as I was coming to that, I was being argued to in a way. And I wonder not to condemn the podcast's effort here if but- maybe putting the novel under this degree of scrutiny and disentangling it in this way sort of murders it in a way. <laughs> I, it not, I'm not a huge advocate. I'm just... You're saying that we're squeezing the mystery out of it by overanalyzing it. And therefore, yes, and that's Ivan we should be openingly loving it rather than... <laughs> Maybe. I'm sure there's a forum for you, a fetish forum for Dostoevsky <laughs> you can find with un, uncritical love. I would say that that question presupposes that there is a right or a wrong way to approach the text, that, or at least that there's a generous or an ungenerous way to approach the text. And you know, maybe, maybe there's a way in which being taking a philosophical attitude or approach towards a literary text is in some way murdering maybe the intent of, if you want to drive it authorial intent or something like that. If I can clarify just a second. Sure. Because I I don't want to sound like some zealot. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my only point is, if at the core of the novel is some sort of condemnation of rigorous argumentation, what does it mean if we are convinced through argumentation of that fact? I mean, I think I, I don't think I don't there's think a condemnation. No rigorous argument. I mean, I, yeah. But there's there's a sense, like many theologians before him, that we are in an epistemic position where we just don't have. There's a hubris about trying to make arguments about these major subjects that you know we're we're just little little tiny creatures and we're overwhelmed by suffering and emotion and all this stuff. And so, how do you apply reason? most effectively, given our profound state of ignorance. And I, that's why I interpret him as this is a uh, text about practical reason. And you know, my original question that I was thinking for this whole episode is just sort of, which philosophy is the best coping method for dealing with the world? Like, that's a little too general, but I mean, that's kind of what he's exploring here. You know, we have kind of cheated a little in that we have his letters. Like, we know that he wrote this as a programmatic thing. Like, we know what his view was. Whereas when I read this out just out of college, I didn't really know what his philosophy was. And so just 
reading it as a piece of literature where each character is a fleshed out philosophy or way of approaching the world is in some ways much more interesting and I think is a more fruitful way of getting at this. But yeah, we're of course can't be satisfied with that. No, and it's, it's also the case, he explicitly, I think it's Zosima's section, I can't remember, where he talks about the use of parables and, and stories so that you can, for peasants, you don't rationalize or reason with peasants, you tell them stories and they get it, they just get religion, they get God, just in their intuitive nature, if you just present them with fables and stories and things like that. And if he thought of us that way, he would not have written this fat boy right here. And if we thought you were peasants, we would have approached the show. In <laughs> we would have approached the show differently, exactly. All right, let's try to get in the, yeah, the final two questions. Uh, first, uh, thank you very much for coming to New York. It's been a pleasure to have you here. Thanks. Uh, thank you. Okay, so uh, I don't want to take too long with this. So you described the uh, section following the bit about rebellion and the Grand Inquisitor as Dostoevsky's best effort as a, a response to what he considers to be a pretty much uh, airtight challenge from atheism and secularism. So reading the book again, I was really impressed that uh, Elder Zosima engaged in more uh, social commentary than I remembered. Uh, now, obviously, it was not the fundamental part of what he was saying. This sort of existentialist approach to Christianity and the way he practiced it was the more fundamental argument. But the social commentary, nonetheless, was very visible, and it was it was surprising. It almost, it almost clashed a little. So Dostoevsky himself, of course, was engaged in dissident activity when he was younger. And uh, if this is to be understood as his final argument, and of course he passed shortly after the publication was complete, does his uh, response include more of a more of a social dimension, more of a political dimension than it's typically read, or, or even that it's presented? Does he engage in a sort of a synthesis with some of the radical political ideas of his time, just putting the Christian, uh, the existentialist Christian love in the forefront? He talks about the dangers, the resentment of the peasantry. Uh, he expresses his admiration for the serfs for not being servile after 200 years of serfdom. And uh, he seems to regard the wealth of the rich as a curse from which they somehow need to be freed, and that brotherhood will ultimately uh, result in a relatively classless society. He had a complicated relationship to all of this, so he was, you know, he was basically arrested when he was younger for being in like a socialist reading group or a radical reading group. But even at the time, he took issue with those ideas, but he was engaged with them, right? So he could show up and argue about those ideas. And Ironically, he you know almost got executed for that, and then spent five years in a gulag. And as you can see from you know the way he has Ivan argue, he takes these ideas seriously, and he gives them their full weight, right? But I think we know from his letters and and other work that he was very anti-socialist, and we also know that unfortunately he was very much a nationalist about Russia and something of a chauvinist about religion and, and things like that. So I, that's the limit of my knowledge about that. I don't know if anyone else has anything to add about, yeah. Apparently before this book was written, he predicted a date for, for the end of the world that he thought that it was the apocalypse and everything becoming a, uh, a universal brotherhood was imminent. And it's just after that passed, then we get this more developed view, which you know, Alyosha starts off as wanting everything just to become suddenly a universal brotherhood. And by the end, under Zosima's uh, influence, comes more of a step-by-step, not extreme. Yeah, let's, should we try to fit in this one last Monica. question? And, yeah. Well, I'm not so sure it's a question. Is uh, maybe an observation or something? I was just thinking early on when we were talking about the concept of God and good and evil and why is there suffering? And I was thinking, well, God doesn't really intervene in human history. 
most likely, right? So then we have that incarnate of Jesus, right? And Jesus does the whole suffering, but we forget that there was a resurrection, right? So in this kind of idea of Jesus and the whole God thing not intervening and then suddenly intervening, is this idea of resurrection after suffering, do you see this in this whole novel? Do you see that apparent anywhere? I mean, he tries to naturalize or existentialize all these, you know, is there literal resurrection I mean, he, he not literal. Like one of the one but, of the things that is pointed out is as miracles, right? People need miracles, but the kind of miracles they need is not the loaves and fishes thing. It is the the you know that you were faced with temptation and you made the right choice. Isn't that a miracle? You know that your that your freedom is it's itself the miracle. Right. Yeah. Zazama describes hell as not being able to love. Right. Sorry. Did you want to? Add to oh, that? I was yeah. just going to say that with the uh, incarnation does come that idea of freedom, and so. That's therefore how we know there is such a thing, right, as freedom. And with this freedom comes the choice of good and evil. And then therefore, if we choose evil, what happens, you know what I mean? From what I understand, the theology here, and this is sort of me channeling a secondary source, but, you know, the traditional, the rebellion section, the traditional argument against evil is sort of an argument against God the Father, and that Mm. new to him, this Grand Inquisitor, one is supposed to be an argument against uh, Jesus' son, and so the ultimate solution is, is the Holy Ghost, right? This ocean of love thing. So there's a theological, I don't really understand. <laughs> I'm not stupid as a, but in, you know what I, or orthodox. But, yeah, I was, just, I was just trying to figure out the whole resurrection thing. You know what I mean? Is there a redemption? Is there a... That's a good thing to talk about over drinks. We, we got to get off the stage right at 8.30. <laughs> Thanks to the caveat. Thanks to all of you for coming. Thank you so much. I want you to remember how good it was once here when we were all together, united by a good and kind feeling which made us perhaps better than we are. Yes. Hey, I hope you all enjoyed the live show. If we want to see the nice multicam video that was taken of this, that's on our YouTube channel, or we embedded it right on the blog associated with this post at parsexaminelife.com. I think if you have a friend that might be open to getting into this podcast, this video is a great thing to share with them. We have a YouTube playlist of all our past live events, and I will try to keep the URL parsexaminelife.com slash P-E-L dash live updated with anything that might be coming up, whether it be a in-person event or a live stream. We love interacting directly with the folks as we were able to do in this Q&A. You can also do that via asynchronous communication. You can email us at pel at partiallyexaminedlife.com where there's a contact form on our website, or you could submit a comment through Facebook or by tagging us on Twitter. So you can make recommendations on what you want us to cover next. If you want to comment on this episode, you can do so. I would suggest just at the blog post associated with this at partiallyexaminedlife.com. I must, as usual, promote our supporter community. The latest and greatest addition to that is our Discord server, which you will be invited to join if you become a Partially Examined Life supporter through our website or there's a Patreon post. If you're subscribed via Patreon, just search Discord. If you are a supporter through Apple, just email us and ask us for the address. Discord, if you didn't know, is a dynamic messaging platform. It's not just for video games or stealing secrets from our government. Wes and I hang out on it with some frequency. We announce upcoming episodes there. If you want to read in advance, 
we're moving all of our not school activity whereby we encourage supporters to start their own discussion groups, their own reading groups. We're moving that all to Discord, which is a much more up-to-date format than our website. You can learn all about that at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. And if you are in financial need and still want to take part, we are happy to give you some sort of uh, discount. Just email us. Next episode, we're going to hear more about this book. It's a very long book. The time we had for this live show was quite limited. So we give this some more consideration. And after that, we're going to move to Friedrich Schiller to start a little arc on German Romanticism. Thanks for listening and good night.